You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Welcome to our super stream. Woo! I am Monique Dusan. This is the first super stream. First one. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And we have with us the one and only Elisa Childers and the one and only Natasha Crane. Welcome. Hi. Hey, ladies. Hello. Well, here we are. Are we ready to have some fun? <laughs> I'm always ready. It's just fun being with you guys, hanging out. It'll Let's be good. So we, first of all, we want to let everyone know uh, about those uh, who are sponsoring this stream. Uh, you can go check out, if you want to know more about Elisa Childers Ministry, go to elisachilders.com, uh, natashacrane.com, theologymom.com. And what what is what what do you do exactly? dot com people. <laughs> I'm not that fancy. Um, but you can go to centerforbiblicalunity.com. That's right. So maybe let's just start off by um, it'd be good to introduce ourselves because there might be some new people joining us on the stream that might know only one of us or two of us. So let's start with Natasha. Uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about you and your ministry focus, what you do, and. Um, why you are interested in commenting on issues related to Orange. All right. Well, I am an author and a podcaster. My podcast is called the Natasha Crane Podcast. And I've written three apologetics books specifically for parents to equip parents to have those conversations with their kids. But a couple of years ago, I started to broaden my focus. And so now I'm really focused on helping Christians think clearly about the biblical worldview in the midst of a secular culture. So my most recent book is my first for a general audience. It's called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. And that just came out a month ago today, actually. And so that's, that's my focus now. Um, and that relates a lot to what we're talking about with the orange curriculum, because we see so much secularism that is bleeding into people's worldviews in general, Christians' worldviews. And I think that there's a lot to be concerned about in what we're seeing in orange and a lot of other curricula that only adds to some of that confusion. And so we'll talk a lot more about that um, as we go on. But I think that it's hard enough in today's world to keep a strong, clear biblical worldview. But when we're getting it also within the church, in the kids program, that secular ideas are creeping in, then we have some real concerns that we need to talk about. So that's why I'm looking forward to working through some of this today. Very good. And I, I think you raise a really good point is that, you know, this isn't just a hundred percent about talking about the orange curriculum. It's really using this as a test case for taking the temperature about what is happening in children's ministries in terms of how we are teaching and discipling our kids. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because it helps to set the table that this is really trying to be a larger conversation. We're going to use Orange as our as our focus because that's where we've done some research and we want to bring that to bear. But, you know, this is really part of a larger question that we are trying to ask. So, all right, uh, Monique, why don't you tell us a little bit about your ministry? Well, I am Monique Dusan, and I am the co-founder of the Center for Biblical Unity with Krista. Um, and I am, gosh, I'm currently in a discussion of race, justice, and unity. But prior to that, I served in children's ministry as a children's ministry director for three different churches. And 
I've seen the conversation of curriculum unfold. I've actually used Orange for a bit and have some thoughts about, you know, what it does well in places where it could definitely use some some brushing up. So I'm here to have the conversation. We have to protect the kids. That's right. Yeah. All right. Alisa, why don't you introduce yourself and your ministry and why you're here? Yeah, well, I fo- my, the focus of my apologetics ministry, which is done through YouTube and through the Elisa Childers podcast, it sort of focuses around the movement of progressive Christianity and then in a broader sense, the phenomenon of deconstruction. And so I've written a book about progressive Christianity. I'm researching a book for decon- about deconstruction right now. So this is kind of the space that I, the headspace that I'm in. And so my concerns in seeing some of the messaging that we're going to be talking about tonight, especially as it pertains to children's ministries and the messages that we're sending to kids, is that immediately I was noticing a lot of similar messaging in progressive Christianity. And another concern I have, just as we're using this as a test case for how uh, curriculum is done in children's ministries, is that in the phenomenon of deconstruction, very often what you'll hear uh, is... Christians who grew up with a very sanitized view of the Bible, they, you know, they thought Noah's Ark was a big floating zoo, and they thought that Jesus feeding the 5,000 was a story about sharing your lunch, and they thought that uh, Jesus healing the paralytic, you know, whose four friends lowered him through the roof was a story about having good friendships, and then they read about the Canaanite conquest, or they read some of the more, what, what some would consider to be the problematic verses in the Old Testament, and then their faith starts to deconstruct, because they realize, like, I didn't even realize any of this was in there, so I'm very concerned uh, when it comes to what we're teaching kids and how we're teaching them the Bible. So I'm excited to be a part of the conversation. Very good. And uh, I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. I have a YouTube teaching ministry and podcast, and you can just search for me, Theology Mom, all the places. And I've been working as a professional theologian for about two and a half decades, and uh, working a lot in the realm of science apologetics, more recently getting into issues related to justice and racial issues from a biblical perspective and co-founded the Center for Biblical Unity uh, two years ago with Monique. And so we are glad to be here because my heart as a theologian, as a former homeschool mom, as I know Natasha's a homeschool mom now, you know, just really my heart is for parents. My heart is to equip the body of Christ to teach the next generation. And that is what I have done for 25 years. And watching that conversation change over time and what are the big questions we're going to have to tackle as parents but the reason I'm here is because I've had a long-standing concern about Orange, and I'm really glad that we're going to have this conversation. So, all right. Um, I think maybe a good place to start, and Alisa, I'm going to throw this to you, is, you know, some people might be tuning in. They don't know us. They, they've never been here before. They don't know what we're about. They don't know anything about our ministries. And they might see this conversation as one of, well, shouldn't this be a conversation that you have in private? 
you know, have you gone to the leaders, the writers of the Orange Curriculum with your concerns? Why are you starting the conversation as a public conversation? Are you trying to call them out? Are you trying to cancel them? What's going on? And so maybe you can weigh in on that. Yeah. And I just, you know, I'm very sympathetic to that, that sort of reaction, because also I just want to acknowledge, we realize that this is, this is a very nuanced conversation. This is a conversation that has the potential to cause a lot of tension in relationships. So we want to be very careful about how we talk about this. Um, And so that is a sentiment that often I see in regard to when a ministry comes out and says, hey, we want to warn you about what this other ministry might be teaching or what this book might be teaching. Uh, Because, you know, Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained his, your brother. And so often I think Christians think, well, you should go to the leadership of Orange first before you go public with this. Um, But actually, I think that's a misapplication of that scripture, because when someone is like, like we write books and when our books go into the public sphere, um, they're out there for potentially, you know, hundreds of thousands or more people to read what we've written. And I think that that's fair game for people to say, Hey, that I disagree with these ideas and here's why certainly we can't expect everyone who reads our book to come to us personally, if they disagree with something. And uh, I want to read a quote here. This is a uh, Dr. J Adams and from a book, uh, Uh, called Grist from Adam's Mill. And I think that he puts it really succinctly. He says, any Christian who sets himself up as a teacher in the church of Christ and publicly teaches anything, thereby opens himself up for criticism by others. If they think what he's teaching is harmful to the church, they have an obligation to point it out just as widely as it was taught. Such public warning or debate on the topic should not be considered a personal attack at all. The teacher's plea that a critic should first have to come to him about his disagreement on the basis of Matthew 8.15 does not hold. This passage has to do with personal wrongs known only between the two who should privately discuss the matter that separates them. What a critic of a public teaching does in pointing out his disagreement with that teaching has nothing to do with personal affronts or lack of reconciliation. He is simply disagreeing at the same public level as that on which the teaching was given in the first place. And so I think that's really applicable here. That's a that's a great perspective to start us off with because we don't have a particular grievance with any particular person. We're we're looking at an entity of teaching and looking at a curriculum. We're going to be talking about the content of that teaching. And um, so our hope and desire is to give people information and encourage them to go do their own research. And to test all things, to hold fast to that which is good, to be a Berean. We are not here to do people's thinking for them. We are not here to be anyone's Holy Spirit. We are here to simply look at some data, talk about our perspectives, our opinions from working in ministry, talking to a lot of families and young people. But we encourage everyone to go do their own research and make up their own minds. So... Maybe before we get into the discussion about any curriculum, and in this case, we're going to talk about Orange. Natasha, I would love to have you kind of weigh in on setting the stage to understand our current reality. Like, where are we as Christians? How many young people are successfully 
transitioning into um, adulthood with their faith? So this is a question for Natasha. Yeah, well, there's actually been a lot of research that's been done around that particular question. And so you're going to get different answers depending on the particular body of research that you're looking at. But in general, they say that at least 60% of kids are walking away from their Christian faith by the time that they leave home. So some research goes as high as even 90%. So we're looking at more than half of the kids who are growing up in a Christian home will walk away from their faith. And those aren't scare tactics. It's not to make anyone think, oh, you know, you know, we're, we have this huge alarm and we're falsely alarming people. This is just the reality of the situation that kids are walking away from their faith. And why is that? Well, there are going to be a lot of factors. We're not going today to pen it on specifically one particular curriculum or curriculum in general. Ultimately, parents are to be the primary disciplers of our kids. We know that. And nothing that we talk about today Day is going to be in conflict with that. However, the church should be coming alongside the parents in a way that is helping to equip kids. We want to make the most of every resource that we have today. And so knowing that we do want to look at what can we do best as parents and as a church to equip the next generation. And another statistic I would throw out there just to make people aware of it is that it's estimated that only 2% of 18 to 29 year olds today have a biblical worldview. Now, let me make sure I heard you correctly. You said 2%? 2%, yes. Okay. So this is not how many people claim to be Christian. If you look at that data, 65% of Americans will claim to be Christian. But when you actually get into the worldview research, and this comes out of Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center, led by Dr. George Barna, who's very well known for this kind of research, when they give out all the kind of research, dozens and dozens of questions about what people actually believe, not just how they label themselves, but when they look at the beliefs that they have and the way that they live their life, they estimate that overall 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview, a functioning biblical worldview, and about 2% of 18 to 29 year olds. So that's really important for us to understand in this conversation, because if you flip that number around, our kids are growing up, they're going to walk into the world and they're facing a culture that with the generation closer to them, 98% have a different worldview than they do. If they have a biblical worldview to start with that, that's huge. We, we have so much work to do to prepare kids to enter that kind of cultural situation. They need so much training and so much discipleship. So that's the lens. I think we're all coming from, as we go into this conversation, it's not just let's, you know, let's be randomly critical of some curriculum that's out there. We're looking at this. We're saying that orange has a lot of influence and that it's used by many, many churches that are out there. How is this contributing or not contributing to the discipleship of so many kids, knowing that this is the, these are the statistics and this is the world that they're going into? And maybe just to further um, elaborate on the definition of a biblical worldview, what we're talking about there are things that historically we would have taken for granted, things like the Bible is the error-free word of God, that Christians ought to conform and shape their lives under the authority of Scripture the devil is real. Jesus was both human and God, that he died on the cross for our sins, um, that there, that he's coming again. I mean, this is the way that Barna defines what a biblical worldview is. It's a fairly robust definition, but it's, it's listing, you know, 
the the major beliefs of of our faith. It's it's not just an anemic. Oh yeah, I I I call myself a Christian. So if only two percent of Gen Z is affirming a biblical worldview, I'm wondering, Natasha, do you, do you have any data on like even in churches, like how many what percentages of kids in youth groups are having a biblical worldview? I don't know if they have looked specifically at the percentages in okay. youth groups. So I haven't seen any data on that specifically. I know that they, that the same research has found that within the church in general, within okay. evangelical churches, that only 21% of people have a biblical worldview. Wow. So, so kids are also going to be surrounded by people within the church who don't necessarily adhere to the core truths as taught in the Bible. And so those, this, uh, those, this is a challenge for all of us, but especially as we're preparing the next generation and helping them to see so clearly the differences between the world around them and a biblical worldview. And so we might even extrapolate from that data that some percentage of a child's Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, small group leaders might not have a biblical worldview, yeah. even if they're going to a quote unquote conservative evangelical church. Yes. So we've got to keep that in mind as well. Now, Monique, I know that you have used Orange Curriculum uh, for a bit when you were acting as a children's ministry director at a major church here in Southern California. I'm curious, why do you think this curriculum is so popular? Because it's so appealing. There's so many um, things to it, pieces to it, to enhance your experience for a, a child. It's multisensory. It, um, it's really fail-proof. Like, it comes with its own script. It comes with the videos. It comes with the worship music. Like, I could get just a random person and be like, here, do this. And they have everything that they need to be able to do it. Many children's directors, children's pastors are bivocational. So during the week, I don't have time to sit and plan all of the games, to plan the crafts, to it's all there. do all of these things, to create notes for parents. It's all here. All I have to do is open up my box, open up my bag, and, you know, there it is. There's an app, there, there's for, an app for it on for, for parents. parents. There are um, cue cards that a, that a parent gets after every, you know, Sunday lesson to be able to work with their kids through the week. Each day has its own thing. They tell you things like when you wake up in the morning at breakfast, say this. When you're driving your kid to school, say that. After school, say this. So it's not just that it's fail-proof um, for the children's team, but it also really helps parents who may say, I know nothing about you know the Bible. I, I'm learning myself. So how do I have the, these conversations with my kids? It really, it, it answers a lot of questions and it holds the hand of the parent and the the ministry leader and the volunteers. I know yeah. that there's podcasts for the leaders. There's podcasts for parents. There's, there's the national conference for, for leaders and volunteers, which we'll get into later in the stream. So this is a very well-financed, highly visually appealing curriculum. And it is, it comes at a price. It comes, yeah. it does come at a price, but the, I think the price people are seeing that, or saying that it's worth it because mm. I can do this curriculum with, I've led, gosh, probably 300 kids on a Sunday in this. 
but you can also do it with 12 kids. And it's, it's also adaptable even for um, learning differently abled learning Mm -hmm. styles. Um, They have just a lot of resources and tools and it incorporates psychology and brain research and all of these things. It is very, um, there's a lot of money behind this and it is very slick looking. And this is not like 1950s Sunday school curriculum with, flannel graphs this is i don't even know what a flannel graph is but there's that, that. i'm showing my age <laughs> showing my age oh, they didn't, they didn't have flannel is. graphs in the black church <laughs> i don't know i don't know I'm, we'll, we'll, we'll get a picture now now we'll, like we'll get a picture going okay. all right i'm gonna make monique a flannel graph now like <laughs> that. i think you need that in your life monique i feel so lost i'm like what is it like, you know what? I'll ask all my questions about the flannel graph. Later. All right. So <laughs> let's look at the the orange website here real quick. Bob's going to pull it up on the screen. And um, this is just the 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 front page of, of the website. And but what I really want to draw our attention to is the the life stages, because everything in orange is built around the various life stages. And so. Bob, if you could pull up that next um, link, that's the one. Okay, so they're going to give you a comprehensive plan from cradle to college. Yes, that's that's pretty appealing. Orange's commitment, and you know, let me let me break down even why it's called orange itself. Yes, it's orange be because it you take yellow, yellow and red make orange. So you have the yellow, which is the light of the, the church, the light of Jesus, the light of the Holy Spirit. Like all of these things are yellow. But then you get the heart of the family, which would be red, the love. And so then the church comes along and partners with the family to be able to, in every stage of life, help rear their children mm-hmm. and, and shepherd them in a way that um, would be toward Jesus or toward a relationship with God. And so the model is kind of partnership. It's definitely partnership. Yes. Okay. So when you see this, it, it is a comprehensive plan. Um, and our the goal is, the why, is to help kids see God for who he is and themselves the way God sees them. So they can uh, love others the way God does. So this is kind of built on the, the, the two commandments of love God and love others. Those Those are sort of the the core framework. And then there, so there breaks down, if you can scroll over, Bob. Yeah, perfect. So there's this kind of um, different stages. There's the preschool stage, elementary school stage, and middle school and high school. So you get all of that all the way into, they're going to transition into young adulthood. Uh, Let's look at the overview timeline, which is the next link, Bob. All right. I want us to to really notice these how these stages work out in the orange curriculum. So, as a preschooler, um, you know they they think like an artist. As an elementary school student, they think like a scientist. And then they have these key questions: Am I safe? Am I okay? Do I have your attention? Do I have friends? Um, so keep keep scrolling over, Bob, the other direction. There you go. Things like an engineer, their identity, they're starting to come of age. Who who do I like? Who am I? Thinking like a philosopher. I have freedom. I have graduation. Where do I belong? 
Why do I believe? And people can go download this. We're trying to use as many public sources as we can so people can do their own research. So I just want to get everyone to weigh in here if you have any thoughts about these life stages and and these kind of goals. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, oh, go ahead, Alisa. You go, Natasha. Yeah. I was just going to say, so so my professional background is in marketing. I have an MBA in marketing. I used to be a marketing executive. I was an adjunct market research professor. So I'm looking at this with my marketing hat on and my apologist hat on together. And I totally get what they're trying to do here from a marketing perspective, because they're, they're looking at these life stages and they're bringing in this research. And I don't know what this is based on. So I'm not sure what studies they're looking at to pull in that a sixth grader, for example, the key question is, who do I like? I don't know, but I'm going to take it as a given that they have all this research here about the questions that are being asked at the different stages. So from a marketing perspective, there are two big terms that, that we use. One is the felt need that someone has in terms of like a consumer and the real need that someone has. And marketers know that those are not always the same thing. Sometimes you know that someone has a real need for something, but they don't feel the need, or sometimes they feel the need for something that they don't have a real need for. So a marketer's job when you're offering a product and you want to convince people of something is to somehow connect that, to identify the felt need for sure, but then to help that come to the real need. So just as an example, you know, health food, for example, well, all of us need to eat healthily. That's a real need for every person, but not every person feels the need for that kind of healthy food. So if you're a marketer and you know, that's the real need, you're going to look for some ways to speak to the needs that people do feel. Do you often feel tired or do you feel uh, that you're not getting the most out of your life? Your well-being is not what it should be things that they'll feel so that you can connect that to the real need. Okay, so with that in mind, if you look at this and all the life stages that they've laid out here, uh, when you look at these things, it's good about actually seeing what kinds of questions kids are asking. Those are the felt needs. The problem here, and I'm going to keep harping on this throughout this live stream because I'm going to see it over and over and the things that we're looking at is there's a real need for discipleship and the questions that need to be answered for kids today that they're not getting to. They are so focused, it seems to me, on the felt needs and answering the felt needs that they're missing so many of the real needs that kids have. And I'll just point to a couple of things on this. If you look at on the timeline, for example, in middle school, maybe if we put that back up, you can see that it says motivated by acceptance. So that's part of the felt need. They feel the need to be accepted. Well, the solution under that says affirm their personal journey. And I have to admit, I was really shocked when I saw that because affirming their personal journey, just to give an extreme example, what if someone wants to kill someone? Well, of course, we're not going to affirm their personal journey, but this is exactly what secular culture says about love and how we should treat one another is that we should just affirm whatever journey someone's on. So this is a very secular idea that's being imported into this chart. And this is, by the way, it's found in a strategy document. So this underlies everything that they're doing. We haven't even gotten into how it manifests itself and in how it's executed. We're just looking at their own stated strategy that in that life stage, that the solution for the felt need of being motivated by acceptance is to affirm kids' personal journey. Well, what if that personal journey is in conflict with what the Bible teaches? We want to Preach. affirm what is we want to affirm what is Christ-like. We want to bring kids toward that, not toward just affirming whatever journey they happen to be on. So 
that's just one example. And we'll keep seeing things like this. And and like I said, I'm going to keep harping on the felt need thing because I think it just explains so much throughout all of the orange curriculum. Uh, You know, and another example, which is one more thing here at the top of this timeline, it shows every kid made in the image of God to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength and trust Jesus. And all that leads to the final arrow of a better future. Well, Okay, but I don't think that's really the point of discipleship. (laughs) How about that it leads to them becoming disciples, that that's ultimately what we want is that they have this great relationship, a faithful relationship with the Lord, that he's their savior and that they know God and want to make God known. How about those things? that they have a better future, that that's the conclusion to this is so secular in nature. Again, you know, that's my headspace as Elisa was calling it earlier is the secularism versus a biblical worldview. And this is a very secular way of looking at things that we want to give kids a better future. It's, it seems so um, it just pales in comparison to what the gospel is and what kids can be offered through discipleship. So those are just a couple of things from this. I mean, we could spend a lot longer just on this, but uh, yeah, it, it's really concerning to see it laid out like this and to see these secular ideas that are just woven into it. It strikes me that, that if the goal is a better future, I wonder what Christians would think about that goal who live under persecution. You know, being a Christian disciple, being a holy, you know, engaging in holiness and righteousness is not going to lead to a better future necessarily for for those people i know you wanted to weigh in on the affirmation part of it well i just gosh as i when i as i go through this i'm like i know that they say jesus i know that you know that's what's in the title and to point people to jesus and things like that but i don't necessarily see that being worked out like in real time in this document um even in the who am i like as kids are confronted more and more with things like the pressure for to to be trans transsexual or transgender you know and things like that well when i'm asking the question like as a young person who am i because my my peers are telling me this but then i go to church and i talk to my leader and they're being directed to affirm my personal journey their goal is to affirm me what is that and it it just reminds me or throws me back to postmodernism and this this conversation of my truth and how do we how are we combating or confronting this idea that there is an objective truth and it's not all about your personal journey or your personal you know experience or your feelings elisa i want to i don't want to forget about you no no that's all good i was just digging on all of that um yeah just my impression of that was just it's very self-focused and that's the thing that I think is really creeping into the church more than anything is sort of seeing the whole world through the lens of self rather than through the lens of God. And so the whole strategy is really about what we want the kid to basically think about themselves. I know that they talked about helping them to see who God is, but it seems like the messaging is really more like how, how God sees you, which is good. We want kids to know how God sees them. But part of how God sees them is that he sees them as a sinner who needs a savior, not just a friend forever, not just a, uh, you know, it's not just that he desires an intimate relationship with you. Although, you know, I'm certainly glad that they're, they're messaging that God wants a relationship with you and that he sees you as someone who's made in his image. But in all of the research I was doing, and it's very hard, by the way, to find a lot of the information, uh, like I, I, it's very difficult to even get a sample lesson to know exactly 
And I've observed a couple of lessons just in a, in a church I was at before. So I have a tiny picture of it. But everything I encountered when it came to this uh, curriculum was really just sort of moralism. It was like, here's how to be good. Here's how to feel better about yourself. Here's how to um, you know, act better in, in the world. And God loves you and he wants that for you. And that was kind of the message, but that's not a whole lot different from what they're calling moralistic therapeutic deism, which was what the research, I think it was in 2005, showed was the basic religious view of most American teenagers, that God was kind of like this giant therapist in the sky that really isn't that involved in your life unless you need something from him. And really he wants you to be nice. And his goal for your life is that you be happy, but he's not going to require anything of you. And so I just think that was the main thing I, I noticed in that layout was that it's really the whole curriculum seems to be through the focus of how we want the child to see themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that that's how it's executed, but, um, you know, that if that's the founding thing there, that's good. Everything's going to flow out of that. Yeah, I wanted to take one more uh, shot here from the strategy booklet. I know uh Natasha wanted to comment a little bit more on their philosophy and the education goals. So, so this is, this Hold is from on. one of the pages in their strategy. Oh, there it is. Okay. So I'm going to just read three sentences from the upper left of that. They say the problem in many churches is not that they don't teach truth, but it's that they don't teach truth in a way that matters to their audience. Just remember what you teach doesn't matter simply because it's true. It matters when you make it matter to the listener. This is a really telling because if you think back, they're, what they're, I think, attempting to say is that you have to help people to feel the relevance of the message. But the way that this is worded, saying that it matters only if you make it matter, I think that's the whole problem here, that objective truth matters, whether someone realizes that it matters or feels that it matters or not. And if you only are approaching things from this perspective, that we just have to keep speaking into whatever matters to someone without connecting that to what truly matters, then you're going to go very off course. And, and I think that you just see that over and over again, because they keep answering the questions that they are assuming based on their research kids have, but they're not actually connecting that to all the real questions that they need to understand today, things like basic apologi uh, apologetics and worldview training, all these kinds of things. And there's an exact quote on the second column there. And it says, there is a tension between truth and relevance. Well, no, there's not. There's no tension between truth and relevance. Truth is inherently relevant. What is true about reality is relevant no matter what. It is a real need that people have to come to knowledge of the truth. Just because they don't feel it doesn't mean that that is not something that they need. So the most important thing to do for any curriculum and in any church for any youth leader is to accurately identify the real needs kids have today and then look at how you can bring them to that through the felt needs that they have. Not to look at it this other way, which it seems to me Orange is doing, by focusing so much on the felt relevance and then seeing what they can teach in order to answer the questions that people already have. I think that's the big disconnect here. So if you were to think about the difference between felt needs and real needs, a felt need might be, I need affirmation, but a real need might be, I need to know, does God exist? Is he good? Is the Bible truly a revelation from God? Can I trust it? 
So I think what you're saying is that the questions that they've identified as the questions that children need to know for you, you're saying these are questions based on felt needs, but they might not be able to sustain the child into adulthood to meet the challenges of living in a secular culture, they might actually have different needs that need to be met that they can answer different questions. And so is it kind of like my child thinks that they have a felt need to eat a lot of junk food, but I, as the mom have the obligation of trying to direct them to some vegetables and (laughs) you know, that there's a, that there's a real need there that I help them find. Yeah. That's it. That's a good way of saying it. Okay. That's exactly right. So if they're saying, you know, who am I, if that's the big felt need at a given stage in life, well, you're not helping them by coming along and just affirming them how you're going to help them is they have that question. Okay, great. Well, here's how you would know who you are. It's based on the word of God. And here's why you should believe that the Bible actually is the word of God. So let's see what the Bible has to say about who you are, not just affirm whoever you think that you are. So yeah, there are great ways to connect this. And I do appreciate, like I said, the life stages model that they're looking to see what kids are asking and where they are in their life. But it has to go so much further than that. And I don't see anything anywhere that identifies those real needs. Like these are the big questions kids need to understand before they leave home. Here's how we connect them. It's just, here's how they're feeling. And it, it kind of drops off from there. Yeah. I think I, I was trying to put it through, put it together in my head of um, like real needs versus felt needs. felt needs, or is it possible to look at these needs on a hierarchy? And see, like, you know, these are the questions that, that kids are asking, but how do I respond? And, um, you know, so yes, a kid needs to, they need affirmation. Kids need affirmation. Adults need affirmation. It's not, you know, that I want my one-year-old to um, not receive affirmation because affirmation plays a big part in their development. And yet, the way that I affirm my child who like kids need to know who they are or, um, you know, the gosh, the, the psychological component to identity. Well, your identity is first found in Christ. And we will answer that question of who am I always from a biblical perspective. So first you are a child of God. And what does all of that mean? And then, um, you know, things like, yes, you are intelligent. Yes, you are, you know, gifted in arts and things like that. But as we answer these questions, we answer it from the position of scripture first. And we always answer it from the position of scripture so that I am able to address some of the felt need. I don't want to just throw out all of the yeah, felt need, yeah, that's... but I want to uh, first affirm the, the, the real need that solid. This is what you need for life and godliness. This is what you need to grow up to be a a Christian individual who is following the Lord, a disciple. Yeah. Um, I want to take a minute to look at their statement of faith, because I think a lot of what we've been talking about so far is educational philosophy and, you know, learning issues. But I want to look at their statement of faith really quick. It, it, It just just to put it up on the screen. They have some statements. They they affirm the Trinity. Um, uh, God is the creator. Uh, the, they, uh, they affirm that the scriptures are error-free and authoritative, uh, that humans 
and there's a lot of language on the site and on their podcast of people, which is interesting. It's all about people. They, they, um, they do affirm, where was that? Elisa, do they? Son or daughter into God's family. Down yeah. God. They don't say that men and women are made in his God's image, but they say people are made in God's image. There's a lot of people language in their podcasts. Monique heard a podcast yesterday that it was like, it was for married people. It, it wasn't, you know, for husbands and wives. There's a lot of people language. Um, I mean, and, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. It just is a little bit, to quote my teenager, it's a little sus. Um, I, I'm, I don't know what's going on there. All right. And then they also affirm um, uh, salvation. If you scroll up a little bit, there we go, Bob. Um, and the, the free gift of salvation. So I guess my, my question for you, Elisa, is do you see any obvious red flags here that or- orange is progressive? Are there some things in the doctrinal statement itself that would make you think like, no, they're not progressive? Actually, this statement was better than I was expecting it to be. So I um, actually, I mean, like you said, they've got the Trinity They, in their own, they're, they're wording this in a more general way, but I mean, error-free, accurate, reliable, authoritative, um, or I guess, does it say without error? I guess. No, no. But, okay. So I I'd like to see that on there, but you know, reliable, authoritative, accurate, uh, people being made in God's image. We have, everyone has sinned. And as a result, we're separated from him. Uh, we've got the resurrection, Jesus, uh, you know, free gift of salvation to all who believe in Jesus. So it's not all inclusive, um, to be forgiven and reconciled to God. So, I mean, you know, I might add a few more things to it, but I think it's it's way better than I was expecting, actually. And I don't think a progressive church would have this statement on their website because progressive churches are not going to have uh, any sort of idea that sin would separate you from God or that you need, uh, you know, the the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. Because that's kind of not in here either, but the resurrection is and the free gift of salvation so, you know, I, I'm, I think it could be beefed up, but it's better than I expected. And I don't think that this would be a progressive statement. Uh, so that was, that was heartening, except the problem though, with progressive Christianity that I've encountered is that very often progressive Christians will maybe recite the Nicene Creed or they'll recite different creeds, but not as an affirmation of what's in the creed, but more as a traditional sort of assent to the tradition of Christianity. There are churches who will sing hymns. Sometimes they change the lyrics of the hymns, but sometimes they'll sing them out of respect for the tradition, but not so much in a way of coming together saying, this is what binds us together. Because in progressive churches, you don't have to affirm uh, all the things that are on this belief statement here. And also my concern, which I know that we're going to get into, is that this belief statement does contain at least this, you know, the, the general explanation of the gospel, but you don't find that in the lessons as they're conveyed to the kids. So in especially this new messaging that we're going to be getting into, I actually think that contradicts their belief statement, which is, is a huge issue. Very good. And, you know, we'll continue to unfold that because it's not unusual for a church or a Christian university to have a, a, a fairly okay statement of faith, but then, you know, how is it lived out in the culture? How does that show up 
in in what they're teaching. So sometimes those end up being two different things. But but we want to give um, a careful consideration that this is Orange's official public position, and to to come at them from that position and with those assumptions and and having that that gracious posture. Um, I want to look at really quick page fifteen from this strategy guide um, and look at kind of uh, the plan of action with an end in mind. What is this end? So the way that they have structured the curriculum is what do I want a kid to become and where do I want a kid to be? At Orange, we believe the answers to these questions are simple. We want every kid to trust in Jesus in a way that transforms how they love God, themselves, and the world around them. So this is, again, kind of the love God, love yourself, love others type of structure. And I, my interaction with the Orange curriculum in seeing it in action this is my concern. And some people might think like, Krista, why do you, why are you picking on this? Like, why do you have this concern? This is not Christianity. This is just the law. It is not the gospel. Christianity is both the gospel and the law. And, and think of law as righteousness. How do I, how do I live as in holiness? The gospel is what the Father has done for me. It is the Father's rescue program for me through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is that rescue program, and, and that is embedded in their statement of faith. But what, I, what I'm, a question mark I have is in this, so much of their wording, the the language focuses on the two great commandments of love God, love your neighbor. And that is an incomplete picture of what our faith is about. Our our faith starts with God's rescue program for us. It starts with the gospel. And then our response to that good news is that I worship God and that I love my neighbor. But even loving my neighbor has to be unpacked in what that looks like. And, and so what I see here is, and, and, and what it, like why my antenna are up is where's the role of the gospel? Because a lot of the language sounds like it's about the practical behaviors, the outcomes how do I live my life? How do I love my neighbor? And that's where I think that we're going in, in all of this. But that language, when you see that language, it ought to cause us to ask a question of, are, is a full and complete picture of our faith being presented? Or is it just kind of an aspect of our faith mm-hmm. of holy living? Because there is no holy living without the gospel. That are it, it has to be rooted and and grounded in that. So for me, that's that's kind of a little red flag as a theologian that I see is that it seems a little truncated. But I'm going to try to have an open mind about it as we continue to un, unfold the data. But Natasha, I'm I'm wondering here. Maybe this is a good time to lay some groundwork 
about secular humanism, because I know that that's where your expertise lies. And, you know, if you're already kind of seeing some, some hints of that in how they're laying things out, and then that can be something in our minds as we continue to investigate the data. Yeah. I, I just want to say one thing to piggyback off the discussion about the statement of faith, though. I yeah. think something that's really interesting to me uh, about the statement of faith, like Elisa said, I do think it's kind of bare bones, but you don't see robust kind of picture of Christianity throughout the curriculum. I think that's kind of what we're all saying, but I think that starts with the statement of faith. That's not very robust. You know, I, I think if you read that description, I know we don't have it up on the screen anymore, but if you read that description of God, for example, yes, we've got the three persons of the Trinity there, but it, there's a very awkward kind of description of God's attributes. So there it is. Uh, you know, we, we only have God is holy. So he is righteous, majestic, and loving that that's all we get. There's nothing in this statement of faith at all about God's justice. There's nothing about the existence of hell there. It's all, it's very kind of one-sided. And so I think you start to see from this picture that something, some important things are missing to give it a robustness, even about the nature of God himself. You know, in a lot of statements of faith, you're going to see that more worked out in, in terms of the various attributes of God. So it's, it's just a little bit strangely worded there. And I think that that kind of traces its way through to some other things like what you were, what you were saying, Krista. So I just wanted to add on to that, that I think the fact it is bare bones is exactly what you see throughout the rest of the curriculum. We're missing some key pieces that they just don't emphasize in any place. Yeah. And that comes back to the gospel itself. Uh, but going to secular humanism. So to give that a definition, I wanted to pull this definition from the American Humanist Association because this is in their own words. They say that humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without theism or other supernatural beliefs affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. So in other words, for most organizations that consider themselves secular humanists, they're saying we don't need there to be any existence of a supernatural being in order to have an ethical system that gives us the ability and responsibility to do good. So they have, for example, a website called Kids Without God. And when you go to that, you can see it's all about we can be good without God. That's the general idea. So in those organizations, they're saying, hey, there's nothing supernatural at all. Let's have an ethical system without it. I'm not claiming in any way, shape or form that Orange doesn't believe that God exists clearly from everything that we're seeing here. We've been talking about that's not the case. But what we start to see is that just the secularism in general, when we say secular, meaning that they're really deferring to the authority of the self rather than the authority of God. We see in a lot of the orange material that it's so much just about the values. It's the ethical system without rooting it in a biblical worldview. So they may not be atheist. Obviously they're not atheists like a, an American humanist association, but it's the same kind of end result. A lot of times where you just end up with an ethical system, kids be nice, kids be forgiving, kids be good, have some good self-control without tying it back to why it matters. What, who gives us all of these rules? Why is there a reason to believe that God even exists and how has he the grounding for morality in the first place? all of these big questions. And it, it's kind of interesting to me that I, I'm taking part of this conversation about orange because the first time I ever heard about it was 
several years ago when my kids were in early elementary school. And I realized that I was getting those parent sheets that were sent home. It had never occurred to me to ask about what curriculum the Sunday school uses. My kids were probably like kindergarten or first grade at that time. And I started looking at the sheets when they were coming home. And after a while, I started thinking, gosh, they're not really tying this to Christianity so much. There's a Bible verse on here, but it just seems like they're telling kids, hey, be nice to your friend and share and don't take toys. And there was nothing that was grounding it back to a Christian biblical worldview. And so I asked, I, I talked to the leader at church and I asked, you know, so what, what is the curriculum that we're using here? And it was orange. And so I interestingly started to see problems with this because of the parent sheets that got sent home when I was looking at that and thinking, gee, this doesn't really seem to give more than an ethical system for kids. And then as I continued in ministry and started going doing speaking events and visiting churches and things like that, I heard over and over from people who were unhappy with Orange for the same reason. And I, and I remember one specific conversation where the leader of the ministry at a very large church was telling me she had just started there. And the first thing that she wanted to do was change the curriculum because the one that they were using was so focused just on the ethical system, the morality, the behavior modification. And she wanted something that was going to actually dig deeper and teach kids about truth, about Christianity specifically. And I asked her what it was, and that was orange. So I give those stories because I think people have started, and we've all heard from people who have the same considerations and concerns, that so much of it comes down to this kind of humanistic perspective. Yes, they have a Bible verse, or yes, they, they talk about Jesus in some way, but the end result really becomes so much more about just morality. It's moralistic therapeutic deism, like Elisa was talking about earlier. Go um, ahead. I was going to say yes and amen. And I wanted to bring this up later. Um, bring it up but now. It's, it's decoupled from righteousness. You know, like, mm -hmm. why are we instructed to be kind, self-control, um, you know, like, what are the fruits of the spirit about? Like, what is this about? Well, be holy as I am holy. Like, it, there, there's a stand for righteousness that is cultivated in us that we should be seeking and pursuing as we follow Christ. And that is, to me, what's missing. Like, yes, you should have self-control so that you don't get into fights at school. Yes, you want to know how to share. Yes, you want to cooperate. Yes, you want to be kind. But Why? Not just so that you can make friends, not just so that you can be accepted, not just so that people can affirm you, so that you can walk in righteousness. This is what is missing from Orange. And I say that as someone who taught it, not just as someone who's gone through the website. This is what is missing. So what is the typical structure of an Orange Sunday School curriculum or, or month or whatever. So each month you're given like a Bible verse. And if they stand, I gosh, I taught this probably three and a half years ago now. So it, they could have changed the structure, but you would have a um, word of the month. You would have a verse of the month. And every morning, every Sunday morning, you will have small group time for like the early kids who show up and they can relationship build in their small group. But then you go into large group and large group is worship. It's a video story. It's a game or two. And um, just a lot of large group things that kind of, you know, 
get the kids sparked and going and ready. And then you break off again into your smaller groups and have some one-on-one, not one-on-one time, but maybe six to eight with, um, with a leader. And so then you're really expounding upon the story. You're doing your arts and crafts. You're having your snack. You're um, practicing your memory verse and all of that. And then at the end, it, that then it's go home time. And then like for me, I had three services. So it was rinse and repeat. Um, but then each parent at the end of the day is given the parent cues or the parent sheet that is sent home. And it tells the parent, hey, this is what we're working on this month. This is how you can participate with your child and things like that. So one of the core things with the Orange Curriculum is there's a word every month. So I've got the words for um 2022 or 2021 was um let me see here go go down go down down right here so for fall 2021 there was wisdom initiative individuality contentment self-control compassion resilience um hope and community. So these, all of the lessons then, from what I understand, focus on that one word for the whole month. So if the, the word is resilience, yes, you know, then that would, um, how are you resilient? Okay. Um, if the word is cooperate, and this is something that I actually brought to my leadership was the word of the month the, was the cooperate. Word of, the, the word of the month, I believe, was cooperate. It's something like that. And I took issue with that from a social service perspective of, well, you know, when we don't teach children the pros and the cons of a word like cooperate, they could become susceptible to something like abuse. So I want to cooperate. Yes. Like I want to be a cooperative person. I don't want to be a, a mean person. Like, you know, but Let's say that, you know, Mr. Smith tells me, well, hey, don't you want to cooperate? Well, if I'm not threading that through with the kid and now all they know is I want to be I want to be a good Christian. I want to cooperate. Well, that might not lead them into a path that's, you know, the best for them. Yeah. So how do we look at the these words of the month and have real conversations with our kids and not just this glorified or very to use Elisa's word, sterile conversation of, of what this word could possibly mean. Yeah. And I think that this, some of the words, like I could make a biblical warrant for them, like self-control. Okay. That's a fruit of the spirit. I could kind of go with that. I'm a little bit more perplexed, like by the word resilience, that to me sounds more like a cultural value, you know, and not saying God doesn't want his people to be resilient, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that that is a little bit odd in uh, the Christian, um, the Christian worldview. That's not like a core value of being Christian, but all of these words really focus on behaviors and, and attitudes. I don't know, Natasha or Elisa, do you want to weigh in on, on this? Well, I just, you know, I'm just zooming out to the big picture here. And in doing research for this stream tonight, I looked through uh, quite a few blogs that were on the Orange site as they would relate to children's ministry, preschool, or preschool you know, elementary, middle school and up, uh, looking at some of the podcasts. And you just, it's very 
it's very psychology based and I'm not saying there's no value in psychology, but it's almost all psychology. I would think that if you are going to be influencing youth pastors and children's ministry leaders, you're going to be pounding into their minds. How do we get the gospel to our kids? Like, how do we disciple our kids in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it's just not there. It, it's, you would almost, unless you have to kind of dig, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's completely absent. Like Monique said, there's mentions of Jesus and they talk about Bible verses, but when you look at all the blogs and everything that's, that's geared toward these leaders, you would not know necessarily that this is a Christian organization unless you dig a little bit. And to me, that's, that's suspect. That's like what the message should be. Yeah. We want to figure out how to create a safe environment. I think, especially in this day and age, we want to make sure our volunteers are trained uh, on how to, uh, you know, spot abuse and things like this. I think that's all important, but there just doesn't seem, it's just so self-focused. And that's the thing that just keeps coming and coming back to me. I remember volunteering once uh, in a kindergarten class, I believe it was, and they were doing an orange lesson and there was a Bible verse that they had the kids memorize. And I was reading the Bible verse going, this does not sound familiar to me at all. In fact, the verse was very self-focused in a way that I had never read a Bible verse like this before. So I wrote it down and I went home and I Googled the exact words of the Bible verse that they had the kids um, memorize. And, and it wasn't, I couldn't find it. There was no translation that matched what they had the kids memorize. And in that moment, what I realized is probably it was a paraphrase, but the, what the meaning of the verse was, I think I found it. It was from the Psalms. It did not mean what they were having the kids memorize. It took a verse really about God and turned it into a verse about me. And that's what they're supposed to memorize. Um, and I remember that was the first time I really had a red flag about orange because I was thinking that's, that's not even actual scripture. They're having the kids memorize. I want to, I don't know if Natasha wants to jump in here too. Yeah. Okay. Just, just really fast. I, yeah. I know we have a lot to cover, but that's I just right. want to add, you know, aside from, and I agreed 100% with what you guys are saying, but it's also just such a lost opportunity, right? It's like, it's like you're saying, there's nothing wrong with talking about resilience, but if you have 12 key words for the year, that's one that you're going to pick when they're going out into a culture that, you know, 18 to 29 year olds, again, 98% of people don't have a biblical worldview. And we're picking a word like individuality and resilience, like there's so, how about sanctification, for example, how about making that the word of the month? There's so much that you could learn about with something like that. You know, there's just, there's so much more that could be done. So it's not just looking at what is there. It's also looking at the lost opportunity of how they could be training kids when they have this much influence. If they're going to spend that much time talking about individuality, the kids getting that from culture, that is secularism, the authority of the self. We already know about that, but what about authority of God? What about reliance on God? What about the word faith and making sure kids accurately understand what a biblical definition of faith would be? There's just so much. And when I see those words, it just makes me kind of sad because those aren't, those aren't the priority words that kids need to hear about today. Yeah. I think for, I love what you said there of lost opportunities. I mean, I think that this sends a message to the child that what Christianity is really about is being a good person. It's treating people nice and it's being kind. Um, and that's really what Christianity is. It's about cooperating. It's about ex being affirmed and expressing yourself and 
that that will get us to the goal of living a better life. I'm, I think that that is a very incomplete picture of what our faith is. And, but it's reinforced throughout the curriculum is um, thinking about the faith in a very individualistic way and in a, in a moralistic way. And, and, in what I've seen, it's like, do I really even need God for this? Do I need God in order to cooperate? Do I really need God to help me engage in these behaviors? So I don't know if you wanted to weigh in on it. No, okay. I um no. All right. I'm going to play a, a quick clip here um, from a video. This is from this month. It's March 2022. I'm going to skip the first clip just for the sake of time, because we want to do the conference, but I want to do hit one more point as we've been kind of unfolding the data on the curriculum. Um, and I think that this really helps us understand a typical lesson of what an orange lesson looks like. So this is a lesson for fifth and sixth graders, I believe. So we're going to watch this first clip is about a minute and a half. And so the word of the month for March of 2022 is community. And so we're, this was the lesson for this last week of introducing that concept to the students. So again, this is for fifth and sixth graders. Start something small and then discover it was fun to take it big. You read an awesome story and then you bring the whole thing to life for your friends and family. You bake a batch of chocolate chip cookies and they taste so good, you recruit friends to put on a whole bake sale. And then you use the money you earn to buy bikes for kids who've never had one. You have fun learning a new way to paint. Then you get together with your friends and paint a whole wall. You send a note to encourage someone. I hope you have a great day. And you also work with your friends to throw an entire surprise party. God created you to do amazing things on your own, but he designed you to do even more when you work together to share his love. And then others can see God at work in all of you. That's why cooperation is a fantastic way to worship God with your life. Because worship is about more than just singing loud. It's all about living loud. Okay, so that was the introduction of the word community. Cooperation. Cooperation Yeah. for the month. All right. I was yeah. wrong. Cooperation. Co- I think, yeah, it's yeah. cooperation. All right. So now we're going to skip ahead in the same video to the Bible time. So that was the introduction vignette. So it's introducing the word of the month. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to skip ahead in the same video to the Bible time. And I'm going to skip skip intermittently some parts of it because otherwise the clip will be six and a half minutes long. And there's some, to quote Natasha Crane, some zany things that happen. And so we will, we will skip over some of that. So this is the Bible story. This is what they call the Bible time. We're going to go to 1205. All right. I'm Mel here to help tell the story today. That's what I do. Kellen. I'm Melf Solomon here, as always, with my brother-in-law, Greg. Say hello, Gregory. Hello, Gregory. (laughs) (laughs) Tell what you tell, Kel, and I'll pipe in with a song when the mood strikes. Oh. 
Whoa, whoa, easy there, Greg. The mood hasn't stricken yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> Take it away, Kellen. Okay. You can find this story in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. God's people, the Israelites, were wandering in the desert. God wanted a place to live among them. So, through a man named Moses, God told the people to build a sacred tent, or tabernacle. It was going to take a lot of planning and a lot of work to build, so the people were going to have to work together. Work together? I got the perfect song for that. Hit it, Greg. Okay, we're going to fast forward through this song. They sing a little song. Go ahead, Kellen. I just need a second to figure this uh, keyboard out. <laughs> it can't be too hard. Um, yeah. The people were going to have to work together. So God told Moses to have his brother and his nephews serve as priests in the tabernacle, which meant they would need workers who had the gift of sewing to help make robes for the priests. So... A needle pulling thread. Okay, we're going right? to fast forward through the singing. Oops, so shy. No left. Thanks. The tabernacle was going to need more than just people who could make clothes. God had given special abilities to these two guys named Bezalel and Aholiab. They could work with metals like gold, silver, and bronze. They could also work with wood. God wanted the tabernacle to have lampstands made of pure gold and a golden ark to hold the Ten Commandments, and a table for holy bread. Ooh, ooh, have I got it. Okay, we're going to skip through the... They also had an altar for burning incense. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, go back to the, uh, the bread table. Sure, what you want me to do. Table. Tabernacle should be built, and everyone wanted to contribute. People gave their talents, they gave materials, they took time to teach other people how to build and sew and craft. They all used their skills together. Yeah, skills. Like my skill to do... Okay, all right. Well, we didn't get to the best part. So they all had to... I'll do it for you. So they all had to cooperate together to build the tabernacle. That, that was the story. Yeah. Yeah. Can you play the music for me? No. No. Okay. All right. So that was kind of that. I want to ask you, Monique, first of all, is that kind of typical? Yes. So you notice like the bright colors, the music, the quirkiness of it all. It's all meant to keep their attention. Um, part of um, part of Orange's thought and the psychology that goes into it is that the attention of a child, which is true, like it, it shifts a lot. Like they don't, they don't hold attention very long usually. So they are constantly doing things to change the, the, the mood, to change the vibe, to be able to keep the kids, you know, engaged. So you'll see singing here and then talking and then, you know, it'll be interspersed throughout. All right. So I think for me, what, strikes me as I was when I first saw the clip, I went, Oh good, a lesson about the tabernacle. That could be cool. But then the 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 real lesson was about bringing it back to the word of the month, cooperation, which to me strikes me as probably not the point of that text. And you know that this is an ancillary point that they're bringing to the text and finding a story 
that will illustrate a point that they want to have. And so my question is, as a, as a, as a educator and a theologian is what does that teach the child in terms of how they approach the scripture that it, it become the scriptures become then kind of, well, I bring my needs to the text and then I look for a scripture that illustrates that. And it kind of turns the scriptures into a type of Aesop's fables, moralizing Mm. kind of a thing. And so that is my concern is what does it train the child to do in how they relate to scripture? I don't know. Elisa, did you want to say anything? Oh, okay. So So many things, so many things. This is teaching kids to interpret scripture through the lens of self. That, that, because that is not what that story is about. That's not what that's about. And it's really frustrating for me to, to watch that because it's like taking this text that really, you know, the one thing that I think we're trying as apologists and, and people who do what we do, we're, we're trying to help people out of the mindset of what does this verse mean to me? Right. Because that, that was something that was very common. A lot of people are starting to say, Hey, like, that's not the right way to read scripture. It's not about what it means to you. It's about what it means. And then application is later down the road. Um, But this is teaching kids to view every story about how it relates to them. Um, One one of the orange lessons that I observed as well was uh, the story of the the four friends lowering the paralytic through the roof of the house to get to Jesus. And and actually kind of similar to this one, they actually relayed the story accurately. It It was correctly conveyed. But then when they say, so what was this all about? It was about having good friends. And it was just mind blowing that, that, that was the message. And, you know, I, it's, I want to acknowledge that I know this is, this is a difficult conversation because this is so enmeshed and embedded in so many churches. So in, I just want to just make this caveat for people listening that in some of the criticisms, we understand that it's not like an overnight thing, just, you know, rip orange out of your, your current, you know, your church and, deal with it. I, obviously we get that there's tension there. We right. get that there's um, going to be, you know, if, if you maybe saw this and we're like, Hey, maybe we need to back away from orange or maybe whatever. Um, you know, that's a different question, but first we have to diagnose and this is a diagnosis. And um, I, I don't, I wouldn't want my children being taught the Bible that way. And I think it's a very dangerous way to teach kids to read the Bible because it's just teaching them moral moralism. That's, that's what it is. It's moralism. That's good. Well, uh, Natasha, did you want to weigh in anything before we transition to talking about the conference? Uh, I think you guys covered it okay. well. Okay. All right. So I want to talk as we transition and kind of wrap up this section on the curriculum. You know, we hope that we've given you some things to think about. And again, um, I appreciate what you're saying, Elisa, is that you know, our purpose here is to try to draw people's attention to this. There's almost, there's very few comments mm-hmm. about Orange and it is hugely influential. So we're just trying to say like, hey, we need to have more conversation about this. We need to be thinking about, are we doing the best for our children? And what are we really teaching them? How are we teaching them to interact with the Bible? So I think we've raised some good good issues there. Let's transition into talking about the Orange Conference and what that's about. I know that that's a key experience for kid pastors, youth pastors. Um, Alisa, maybe you can 
kind of get us started here as to what put this on your radar um, a couple of weeks ago with regard to the conference? Right. So when I saw this wording, um, immediately I recognized progressive Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that's intentional. I'm not saying that, that there, there's some diabolical plan for Orange to teach progressive Christianity, but this is the world I live in. I, I've, I am always reading at least one book written by a progressive Christian. So the themes that pop up in that movement are going to be really recognizable to me because I'm, I just, I study the movement. That's, that's part of my research. And so the very fact that the, the, the title of the whole thing is be human. And so I'll just start reading. Uh, do you want me to start reading some? Yeah, of the- I'm going to have Bob scroll down a little bit here and then we're going to link over to the, um, Click on that read more button. Or do you want to read this part first, Elisa? Um, or just go to the... And click more. Yeah, yeah because, re- go to read more. Yeah. Um, and I want to say this too, that what I'm about to read, keep in mind the backdrop of everything that we've just talked about for the last hour and 15 minutes, recognizing just that emphasis on self, everything sort of coming through that lens of self. Um, there's a cumulative case being made here, right? We're not trying to just pick one... I I don't like um, the uncharitable approach that can be taken sometimes in online spaces where somebody says one wrong thing and everybody jumps on it and says, oh, it's heresy. Um, I want to make the point that we're building a case here where we're not just taking one isolated instrument, uh, incident. We've looked at several different aspects leading to the messaging on this conference. So I'm just going to start reading through this. Um, we've, we're more aware than ever before that there's a fragility to our humanity. Today, many of us are more insulated, cautious, skeptical, afraid, and reluctant than we were only a few years ago. There's an impulse to withdraw into the safest places we can find and forfeit the life we were designed to live. The only problem with that logic is that we are human. We are complex beings whose very existence holds immense contradiction. We are made in the image of God and deeply flawed. We are both divinity and dust. We are redeemed for life and destined to die. As complex as we are being human, it's a remarkable thing. Right there, uh, there are so many red flags. Uh, first of all, we, we are complex beings, but our existence, I don't see contradictions in our existence. I think the Bible has a lot of clarity to speak about what humans are, what's wrong with humans, how that problem is fixed, where we come from, why we're here and where we're going. I don't think there's a lot of contradiction there, Uh, but in and of itself, that wouldn't be enough. But then it goes on to say, we were made in the image of God and deeply flawed, almost holding those things in tension together, but they're not in tension together. We are made in the image and likeness of God, but we're not just deeply flawed. We are fallen, we are depraved, we are sinful. And all of us have distorted that image of God in one way or another through sin. So it's not just about being deeply flawed. That's a language you are going to hear in progressive Christianity, that we're messy, we're broken, we're flawed. Um, But the Bible actually teaches us that before we put faith in Jesus, we're actually children of wrath. We are enemies of God. We are dead in our sin. This is the kind of language that the Bible uses. And so to, to tell kids, you're made in the image of God and you're deeply flawed. Hmm. And then it says, we are both divinity and dust. 
I mean, listen, I'm trying to be as charitable as possible, but we are not divinity. We are absolutely not divinity. And my concern is that one of the pervasive worldviews that's coming into the church through progressive Christianity is this idea that every single one of us have this divine spark in us naturally. It comes through a worldview called penentheism, which uh, teaches through people like Richard Rohr that when God created the universe, he incarnated himself into physical matter, filling the universe much like a hand fills a glove. Uh, Rohr will refer to the universe as the body of God. And, And then because of that, Christ is in everything. So if you need to look for Christ, look no further than yourself, Uh, the animals around you, the trees, the rocks, and every created thing carries the divine spark, this image of God. Richard Rohr actually teaches that uh, it's not just humans that carry the image of God. So to say we are divinity, um, that is at the most charitable I could be to say extremely problematic and at the strongest heresy. We are not divinity. We are not divine. We are redeemed and destined to die. But again, is a distinction being made here between believers and everyone? Because it seems like we are human. So these statements apply to humans. We are redeemed for life. Well, not every human is redeemed for life. And so, I mean, that's just a start. I don't know if you want to continue because it, it gets worse. No, no keep, keep, keep going. going. Yeah, yeah, keep going. It's good. Oh, Bob, put it back up on the screen for you. Okay. Um, Remember, when God became human, it wasn't to prove God's divinity. That could have happened from a distance. What if Jesus became human to prove the worth of humanity? Jesus did not come to earth to prove the worth of humanity. He came to save humanity from the sin that has them separated from God and condemned to death. This, this is just, this is progressive Christianity being taught to children. And again, I'm not saying it's intentional. Very, very difficult to reconcile what I'm reading with the belief statement we read before. It goes on. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus became human. He invited humans to see themselves the way God saw them. Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection proved there was incredible worth in humanity. My goodness, that is not what Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection came to do. That's not what that's for, is to prove how worthy you are. That is absolutely 100% the progressive gospel. Uh, In Rachel Hollis's book, Girl, Wash Your Face, she sums the gospel up that way, is realizing how loved and worthy and enough you already are. This is the progressive gospel, one of the core tenets of what is taught in progressive churches is that you, you don't, you shouldn't see yourself as someone who's separated from God by your sin. You just need to realize your inherent worth and dignity and value. And if you feel like you're separated from God, it's really just in your own mind. It's self-imposed. You need to fix that about your own mind and realize that God made you. And this message that we're seeing here is promoting that idea that really the reason Jesus came was to show you how worthy you are. It says, Jesus anchored our faith to a God who was not distant. When Jesus showed up in a cult, now we're going to get into- This is my part right here. Go ahead, girl. Um, You're up, Monique. Go ahead. (laughs) 
And you know, so I'm like, this is the only part I even want to comment on. I, I'll let all the theologians and stuff take that over. But when when it, they said when Jesus showed up in a culture that was struggling with political unrest, racial race, racial division and religious abuse, he disrupted the system. And that is where critical theory meets Christianity. This is where they shake hands because it is all about systems. It's all about political powers, political structures. Um, Jesus overturned the table, the tables at the temple because of the political structures, because of the systemic, um, the, the systemic influences that were happening inside of the temple. It's all about overturning the systems of the, of his day. That is why he came. It has so it's reimagining, it's reimagining our faith through the lens of the critical social theories. That's what that wording yes. signals to you. But yes, and it's it's a, it's a reimagining or um, a redefinition of the gospel itself. Mm. That that Christ did not come to redeem, to save humanity, to save a very fallen. We are fallen, depraved people. children of wrath. Children of wrath. There ain't nothing, we we wasn't good before, <laughs> you know. And and this this moves us away from that to say that well, it was about the system. Mm-hmm. It's the system that is that is you know wrong. If we just fix the system then surely we will be okay. No, you can fix the system all day long. I'm still a mess. Maybe not you, but I am. It was interesting when I was going through the strategic or the strategy document that we were looking at earlier, I did a quick word search for keywords like redemption, saved, salvation. All of those came up with zero hits. Um, Sin, there was one hit, but Mm -hmm. there was a lot of hits on, you know, more of a psychology type type words and identity and that sort of thing. And so it does seem like there's this kind of subtle drift uh, that's happening here. So, all right, go ahead, Elisa, and, and keep, keep going there with the, with reading through that. Yeah. Um, so now I got to catch up where we were. That was Jesus filled. Where did I lose it? Right in the middle there. Bob's going to highlight it for you. So I was looking at my own document. So Jesus filled a hurting and skeptical world with hope. Many of Jesus recorded teachings demonstrate how he appealed to the image of God in every human. He instructed humans on how they should treat humans. Jesus reprioritized love. Uh, You know what? He did do that. He did fill a world with hope. He did instruct, uh, you know, uh, now I can't find it on my thing. Uh, but it leaves so much out. Like Natasha noticed even about the belief statement, there's nothing about judgment. There's nothing about hell in that statement. And right here, it's basically just saying, Jesus basically came to be a good moral teacher. That's what you're going to find also in progressive Christianity is that he's not really requiring you to trust in him for your salvation and make him Lord of your life. He came to you know reprioritize love. He came to disrupt systems and things like that. And it said, yeah, many of his recorded teachings, and that's another catchphrase you'll hear in progressive Christianity. It's like the life and teachings of Jesus helped me to X, Y, Z, rather than the person and work of Jesus Christ mm. uh, saves me from my sin, right? These are, those are two very different messages. And everything's, uh, it says, it goes on to say, everything Jesus said and did then is still true now. This generation desperately needs a demonstration of faith, church, leadership, and community that is human. And that embraces their humanity 
like Jesus did. Jesus was sinless. He was fully God, fully human. He's not in this sense like, oh, we look at how Jesus embraced his humanity. So that's what we need to do. Let me answer this question. I'm sorry. I'm, this really gets to me. It says, so what would it look like to keep leading with that end in mind? What if we embraced both the teachings of Jesus and the words of Paul when he named what it means to demonstrate the fruits of the spirit lived out in our human lives? What if we demonstrated how to be, and then they say all their words? Well, I, I want to answer that question, and I mean this. I'm not saying that everything leading up to this point with Orange is applies to what I'm about to say, but if this is what children are taught, what I just read to you, you are leading children to hell. I can't say it any clearer or more strongly than that. If this is the gospel message that you communicate to children, you are not giving them the saving reality of the gospel and you are misleading them into a belief system that will lead them to hell. And I'm just gonna add on that, to tell a child love God and love your neighbor is what Christianity is about will not lead them to heaven. They must have the gospel. They must know what Jesus has done for them to allow them to love God, to allow them to love their neighbor. This is when this really starts to matter. And I will add from a very practical, like hands-on standpoint before orange, before I, I worked with that church with orange, um, I had a lot of this mindset anyway. And now when I look at my kids who are grown, they are all great humans. But that's basically it. They're great humans. There's not a lot of kids that still have relationship with Jesus. They're like, I, I look at their pictures and I'm like, oh my gosh, like you're, I know you're a great person and you have a great career and you're half naked on Instagram. Like there, there isn't a, a aspect, like I said earlier, of what does it mean to be a righteous person? What does it mean to to follow Jesus, to actually be a disciple of Jesus? And so when children's leaders, when we offer kids, um, you know, more morality, we offer them something that isn't attached to the gospel, that isn't truly attached to what it means to be a follower of Christ. Eventually, they just end up being good adults, but there there's no attachment to God. There's no attachment to um, to the scripture and to the word and what that means in their heart for them to walk out. Did you want to read some more there, Elisa? I think that was it. You got to the end. Okay. Was there anything else you wanted to comment or, or Natasha, you want to jump in? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll comment. Elisa, did you want to finish commenting on anything? Well, I guess there was a little bit more, but it's just talking about the conference being an inv invitation to gather Every voice, song, message, breakout, and resource will be a challenge to us to reimagine what we do as the humans that embody the church. Uh, at the Orange Conference, you can connect with leaders who are doing what you do, collaborate with diverse thinkers so you can see what you don't see, challenge, what has been normal, and return to what is more human. I mean, this is just, th this is just terrible. It, this is not Christianity. This is not Christianity. Go ahead, now Natasha. 
I'm sorry. I was just going to finish out. Now is the time to return to the reason why Jesus showed up in the first place and which they've said is to prove the worth of humanity. Now is the time to rebuild trust with a generation who has become disillusioned. Now is the time to revive the hope that Jesus offers humanity. So let's do that together. Now is the time to be a little more human. So this, this is what it looks like when you hyper-focus on felt needs and you don't look for the real needs. This is an exact output of that. They are basically writing exactly what the world wants to hear about Christianity. That's what is so striking to me in this. They, these are the things that people want to hear. These are the felt needs. They People want to know today that Jesus was someone who was fighting the political unrest and racial division and religious ab- abuse and disrupted the system. They're using these words, I'm going to say intentionally, because that's the felt relevance. That is what people are feeling today. That's what they're talking about. This is what people think is the problem in the church. And so they're tickling the ears of people who are saying, yeah, that's the problem with Christianity. That's the problem with the church. Let's get back to being more human. Let's get back to being more the way that that we should be in terms of some kind of morality here. So when you see all this language that they're using, it truly is speaking to what especially people outside the church want to hear. And that's what's so fascinating because this is directed at ministry leaders in the church, but it's very clear that they're trying to please the rest of the world. I mean, when it, when it says, what if we embrace the teachings of Jesus? How about the person of Jesus? I mean, just going back to that, it's so specific to say the teachings of Jesus. And that leaves out the entire gospel when we're talking about the person and the work of Jesus, like Elisa is saying. But see, the world is perfectly fine with the teachings of Jesus in certain selected mm-hmm. senses. They are happy to say that Jesus is a good moral teacher while obviously not looking at everything that he taught, but they can get away with saying this without a lot of criticism because they're not talking about Jesus being God, for example, or about how we're all sinners in need of a savior. They're not talking about that. They're talking about the behavior. And, you know, I, I especially this la- next to last line really bothers me. Now is the time to rebuild trust with a generation who has become disillusioned. That says so much. That's what they want to do. Well, what kind of trust are they rebuilding? If we have a broken trust because the world looks at us and says, we don't trust you because you have a different idea of what justice means than what we do using critical theory, for example, or we don't trust you because of what the Bible teaches on sexuality. We're not going to rebuild that kind of trust by any kind of affirmation. We shouldn't be doing that. But if their goal is to rebuild trust with people who don't like the church because of what the Bible teaches, you are going to start tickling ears. You are going to start saying the things that you think non-believers want to hear. Mm-hmm. And they're training ministry leaders to take this to churches, to take this to kids. This is, it, it's shocking. It really is shocking. And it, and it, oh, that word trust, it really just gets to me because yes, this generation is disillusioned with the church. There's no doubt about it, but we're not going to help anything by trying to go and say, oh, you feel that the church is bad. We need to regain trust with you. Well, they're not going to change their view of that based on where they are right now. We need to regain trust in a real sense for the real need of bringing truth to people, bringing truth to the disillusioned generation. They might not like it, 
but we can't expect that everything we do is going to be received with joy by non-believers. It's just the reality of the world. So this is so misguided. And like I said, at the very beginning, when you hyper-focus on what people want to hear and the needs that they feel, you're going to get something exactly like this. They started with the felt needs, not the real needs. And that has worked its way through the entire thing. Alisa, I'm wondering when you read this, you know, we looked earlier in the, in the stream at the statement of faith and their education strategy. And we looked at some samples, but I'm wondering if you see these, this verbiage in this conference description as a sign of possibly something more serious, that there is a drift that's happening into progressive Christianity. Uh, Well, yeah. And honestly, typically when there is that drift, it's more subtle than this. That's why this is just utterly shocking. I mean, like Natasha mentioned, this is sort of the natural progression. I can see that. But to me, when I read this versus some of the other materials that I read, which I still might have some problems with, there is something very intentional in this wording. And to me, it reads as if they hired maybe somebody else to come up with this, you know, theme and write the messaging because it's not subtle. It's radically different from just the sort of neutral human, well, not neutral, but sort of that humanistic self-focused behavior model. This is something that is very, very intentional and it's very progressive. And it is, it is, I mean, there's just no mistaking that this is progressive Christianity in this conference. Um, I think that there's, you know, if, if I could influence anyone at Orange, what I would say is this seems to be a sharp turn in a wrong direction and you can still back out of it. You can still walk out of this. Don't do this. Don't, don't go to this direction. That would be my hope because, you know, I would love to see Orange do that. I would love to see Orange wake up and go, oh, wait, this is not the message we want to send. And let's, hey, let's take a look at, let's take all these amazing tools we have. Let's take all of these parent cues and all of this amazing infrastructure that we have and let's turn it toward the gospel. Let's make this gospel centered. Wouldn't that be amazing? I, I would hope that that could still be the case. But this, this is intentional. This is progressive Christianity. There's just no getting around that, around that. One of the things that I wondered along those lines is if you look at the statement, was it just somebody who maybe just went off course and they're like, hey, you know, 23 year old over here, can you write something up that sounds good about the conference, right? How does that line up with what we see in like the speaker sessions and things like that? So I was kind of poking around and looking at all the different descriptions out of curiosity to to see, does this kind of theme manifest itself in the types of subjects that they're covering and how they describe them? And a lot of the, the subjects themselves of the sessions, they're not I mean, they're not anything crazy. I mean, it's kind of like the standard ministry stuff of, you know, attention and and how do you get engagement, things like that. But there are a couple of them, and I'm just going to read a couple of brief sentences. There's one called what parents aren't telling you, but you need to know. And just the first line of this, it says, most families in your community are not anti-faith. They're actually looking for a version of faith that will shape their children's sense of worth and purpose. 
but parents don't feel supported. That's the whole purpose of this, this session. So again, it's the felt need. You're seeing this again, that they're saying, here's what parents are looking for. They're looking for a version of faith. How about the faith? How about the faith that will shape their children's sense of worth and purpose? And now this is going to help you help the parents who have that felt need. <laughs> it would be totally fine if they said, this is what parents are looking for. And then say, but here's what they really need today. They need these resources for discipleship. And so here's how to meet that need, given how they're feeling. That would be amazing. That would be great, but that's not what you see. And then just one more example, there's a session called church-based community development working together to help marginalized humans. And the beginning of this says the secret to how your community views your church is connected to how you help others and how you help other churches help others. Well, yes, that is, we certainly want to do good works. We certainly want to bear fruit and live out our faith in ways that people look at and give God glory. Yes, absolutely. But there's just this sense that they care so much about how the world sees us. They want, they're saying, you know, how the community views you. Here's what you need to know. It's, we're not in charge of how the community views us. Of course, we want to glorify God and for people to come to God because of what they see the church doing, but that's not our primary goal. We can't control that. What we control is that we're glorifying God in the way that he defines and that he commands in the Bible and the rest follows from that. So every, every step in here in the sessions that aren't just kind of basic ministry that don't get into the specifics here, there's just so much about how people see us and that felt need. And I, I think that you do see the theme play out in these sessions and the selection of speakers. So I, I do think that it's a concern and not just that someone created an errant statement. I'd want to know how are they defining marginalized humans? Well, and there's that, again, there's that human and people talk that seems to be all over the website now, there's also a session for leaders and for student ministry people on racial reconciliation yes. led by Al Tate, who is somebody that we have some familiarity with. Mm -hmm. He's a popular. He just released a book on racial reconciliation. Um, yeah. Yeah. And is a frequent consultant at Biola and frequent chapel speaker at Biola. And uh, what would you think would be a fair way of characterizing his his point of view? It, I don't know. He, he probably I haven't had a conversation with yeah. him on his point of view. I know that his church just based on has his a sermons and, for racial reconciliation at his church. Um, what would be the POV on, of that? I think I don't know that they would say that they are critical race theory affirming, but they definitely do hold to a position. I I would say as, as having watched um, some of their work. That, you know, this oppressed oppressor kind of mentality, I don't know that they would say that it's critical race theory, I, but I do see that playing out. I think that they do play into or um, uphold some degrees of whiteness or the idea of whiteness. Um, and I think that the book will be mo probably written from that perspective. Um, but that's just a guess. You haven't seen that's it. That's just a guess. I haven't yeah. read the book. So... Um I, there's also going to be a breakout session on LGBTQIA+. However, no speakers are mentioned there, so we can't give any kind of input. It's interesting. It's one of the, you know, one of the sessions that doesn't have speakers. That might be nothing. It might be something. If the speakers were there, we would be able to maybe look a little bit more about the, the POV that they're going to be bringing that from. 
but we can't really comment on that because the speakers aren't listed. I looked up um, Dr. Chinway Williams. Um, she does work in trauma with kids and things like that. And I know that you didn't, you don't have that highlighted, but I do think it's interesting in the conversation of race that um, she deals with racial trauma. And so even that aspect, introducing that aspect to it plays into a lot of the cultural narrative that's being discussed right now about race, racial trauma, what is traumatic, who, um, who are the victims of yeah. racial trauma and how do we you know, serve that community? When we looked at the speaker list, Elisa, you said there was, wasn't anybody that like super jumped out at you as being, you know, a big time progressive, but there was a lot of names that are in this kind of middle position that are between, you know, the, 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 the conservatives that are kind of like known as being real conservatives. And then there's the progressive people, because then there's this whole group of conference speakers that are, I'm going to characterize it as being in the Bob Goff, you know, like not overtly progressive, very positive um, leadership skills, uh, how to be your, live your best life now kinds of speakers. And I don't know if you want to add anything to, to that on the speaker lineup. Well, yeah, so I, could, I probably can't comment on any individual speaker, but what I will do is make a broad comment about kind of where I see people landing with things like this. So as you mentioned, you have, you have a group of Christians who are boldly proclaiming the gospel. Um, they're getting, you know, a lot of pushback on social media, but it takes courage to do that. Even in, if you're a, a public Christian who maybe is known for maybe like you said, leadership skills or how to, you know, how to platform yourself or, um, you know, maybe sort of practical strategies for having a good life. There's sort of that category of people. And I think that in that category of people, there are a lot of, uh, of those leaders who would agree with the people who are loudly and boldly proclaiming the gospel, but they don't do that for fear of the pushback or that they might get labeled as hateful or harm, harmful. And, and they might just say, well, I'm just going to stay in my lane and do my thing. And, uh, and, and so there's a huge category, I think, of people in that in that middle lane. Uh, and again, I think people in that lane, there's a lot of progressives that aren't overtly progressive verbally, and there's a lot of more conservatives that aren't necessarily that verbally conservative, but they're kind of all in this mushy middle. And, uh, and then you have the outspoken progressives on the other side. And so what it seemed to me by looking at just kind of doing a just a cursory look at some of the speakers is that's, that's the category that, that is speaking at this conference. Uh, you don't have really anybody represented who is going to call people to repentance. That's going to proclaim what the Bible has to say about sexuality or what it might have to say about other hot button issues, abortion or whatever it might be. And again, it's not like you always have to mention those things, but if you're going to do a breakout and you're going to call it LGBTQIA plus, um, to me, and again, I don't know what the session is going to entail. We don't know who the speaker is. We don't know what the messaging is going to be. But, but even using just using those that's initials, that's right. You're buying into gender not, theory on some level. Yeah, it's not like they're saying we're going to talk about biblical sexuality and yes. how to work that out in our ministries. They're using the world's alphabet 
And, and again, you know, we don't know what that's going to entail, but I have my suspicions of what that's going to entail. And so I think that at very best, at the very least, if people are going to this conference or going to be continuing to use Orange, you better find out what they're teaching the leaders in those sessions. Uh, are they encouraging Christian leaders to stand with the Bible on what it has to teach about everything from sexuality to justice, to the sanctity of human life, to marriage, to all sorts of things. Um, because we don't know, but if you're going to continue, you should definitely find out. Yeah. And I, I think this is helpful. I want to, as we start to wrap up here, um, I guess my question to Natasha and to Elisa both in your conversations with young people looking at the numbers, do you think orange is going to help slow down those attrition rates that we discussed at the top of the stream? Is this going to help create a faith that endures? What are you seeing as you're, as you know, and you too, as in talking to young people, you know, who are deconstructing, leaving the faith. I, I guess I just kind of want us to, to revisit what we said at the top is, is orange going to help prevent those, those attrition rates. So I'll, I'll let Natasha go first. She's got the, she, since she started us off. Uh, you know, I, I think, I, I think everyone can see how we're probably going to answer that question that we don't think that this is what is going to equip kids for today's world, or even equip them with an understanding of biblical Christianity. And those are, are a bit of two different things that we're talking about. And kids need both of those. It's one thing to accurately understand Christianity. And it's another thing to accurately understand what's going on in the world today and what the predominant worldview is and how to clearly distinguish those. So I don't think that through, and, and again, through Orange or any other curriculum that is sort of of this nature, I don't think that those are preparing kids for either of those things. I don't think we're giving kids any kind of depth in understanding their faith, nor are we giving them any kind of understanding of what's going on in the world around us. When I speak at churches and, and conferences, I often talk about four key things that areas of knowledge that every kid needs. The first one is what the Bible teaches in a very deep sense, not the kind of orange sense that we've been talking about. Number two, why believe it? So how do you make a case for the truth of Christianity, especially when you're surrounded by 98% or more of people who don't believe the same thing? That's really important. Number three, what others believe. So what is it exactly that the world believes? What is the message that they're going to get? And number four, how do you answer challenges to Christianity? So those are four huge knowledge bases that kids, I believe, need today to have a confident faith in this world. And I don't think that this type of curriculum is going to get kids anywhere near those points. I think it's attempting to do the very first one, what the Bible teaches, but doing it in such a shallow way and often in inaccurate way, I think. I think that when you do just present it as some kind of humanism. It's not just shallow, but it is inaccurate because it's not just, for example, the parent cue that I saw when I had my kids being very young, I remember specifically, it was all about, you need to forgive your friends. 
And that's what triggered me because it was nothing about how Jesus forgives us, that we forgive others because Jesus forgives us because he made a sacrifice on our behalf. There's none of that connection. And so if all we're teaching is the shallow level, it's, it's not just shallow, but it's also inaccurate. Mm. So no, I don't think that there's any depth here that will prepare kids for the world. And I do think that it can actually make kids more likely to walk away because I think Krista, you were the one who said earlier that, or I don't know, someone said it, that at some point they're going to decide, well, I don't need God for that stuff. I can forgive my friends. I can share my toys. I can be a nice person. I can help a little old lady across the street. I don't need God for that. I just spent hundreds of hours in church, but, but why I can be good without God. Guess what? That's the American Humanist Association motto. That's secular humanism right there. So they might hold on to some kind of loose belief in the supernatural. Maybe there's a God who's somewhere out there, but not the revealed God of scripture who has told us the truth about reality and who he is and who we are and what he's done and what we need to do. There's no sense of that. So it's, it's inaccurate. And I would go so far as to say it's harmful. Alisa, in your conversation with, with Christians who have deconstructed do you see any anything that's happening here potentially, possibly, maybe in Orange that sets a shaky foundation for the future? I mean, I, I do. I think that in, you know, the deconstruction stories are very unique. They're like fingerprints. There's no two that are alike. Um, but there are a lot of commonalities that you begin to see as you talk with people who have deconstructed and listen to stories. And the Bible is a huge center focal point of many deconstructions. And uh, like in Rachel Held Evans' book, she talks about as a little girl, there was a girl with a magic book and she talks about how, you know, she, it was filled with all these almost like fairy tales to her and it was just magical. But then as she got a little older, she says the, the God who was supposed to be the hero of the story was really emerging as the villain in the story because she apparently hadn't been given the tools to really think through uh, what was actually going on in the Old Testament. And I see parallels with a lot of people uh, as they deconstruct. Maybe they start to read the Bible a little more for themselves. And like I mentioned earlier, thinking that the Noah's Ark was a floating zoo and they realized the, the horror that underlies that story of God's judgment. And they never really had a category to process all that before. And so what often ends up happening is they adopt a progressive view of the Bible that says, well, hey, God wouldn't do those things because that's not nice. I mean, I've, I've been taught all my life to be nice. I've been taught all my life to be good and, and be kind to other people. But then God is, you know, do, uh, uh, pronouncing judgment on people and killing people with a flood and smiting people with fire. And how do I make sense of this? And so very often the Bible gets thrown out or it gets re, ra, so radically reinterpreted that it's, it doesn't even mean what the original authors intended it to mean. And so I think the Bible is a very huge part of that. And so the failure to give our, to our kids tools to interpret the Bible, to understand the Bible uh, is, a, is a huge potential, but also just something that really stood out by watching some of the videos um, I don't, we didn't even talk about this, but there are so many stereotypes that are presented in those videos. Um, very sanitized, very Barney the Purple Dinosaur. And I think that sells the Bible short, even for kids. I'll never forget you guys going to this thing when I was in the Christian music industry. And it was John Piper. And he had a room full of contemporary Christian artists. And he was talking about 
our kids and, and talking to our kids about the Bible. And I'll never forget, as long as I live, he was talking about the, the loaves and the fishes. And he said, your kids can handle the Bible. That is not a story about sharing your lunch. And it, he was so just like zoned in. And I didn't even know who he was at the time, but I was like, this guy is intense. But I remember that really challenged me. Like our kids can handle what the Bible is actually about. And if we don't give them the tools and we don't expose them to some of the darker parts of the Bible and start wrestling with that with them, I know my kids are 10 and 13. They're already wrestling with it. And if they go to church and they have this sanitized Barney, the purple dinosaur cartoon, that's telling them to be nice. And then they read the Bible for themselves and they're like, wow, this is really different. I have no tools to, to handle what I'm reading right now. Um, I think that's that's causing a, a culture that is ripe for this type of deconstruction. There's other reasons people deconstruct, but just is if the Bible is one of those pillars, um, we are really not doing a good job of preparing our kids to interact meaningfully with the Bible and wrestle with some of the darker parts of it. And I'm not saying you have to, you know, tell the story of Lot's daughters to preschoolers, but there's an appropriate exposure to the, listen, the Proverbs that they're teaching the kids, the Proverbs begin by saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we present a God that's just super nice and like wants to be your best friend and is just really happy when you do good and nice things, then we are not presenting the God that will judge the living and the dead, the God that is returning uh, with a sword in his mouth. And at that point, you're either going to be at war with him or you're going to be at peace with him. It's your choice. We have to start introducing uh, the fullness of who God is when kids are younger. And I don't see that in this. I think the danger is that I'm, I encounter is the long-term result of this type of teaching. It conditions children to see the Bible through a funhouse mirror. It's, it's a distorted view of scripture. There are details here and there that are accurate, but they don't have the whole picture. And so then when they do start reading the Bible for themselves, they're like, whoa, I never knew this mm -hmm. was in here. And then, you know, when they hear somebody like us speak up and say, you know, hey, don't throw away your faith. Like there's good reasons for being a Christian. They see that as, you know, like, well, that's, that's kind of harsh, you know, and they see people like us probably as, as being harsh when mm -hmm. we're just trying to have clarity ab about the historic Christian faith. So I don't know if you want to add I anything. I think you guys said most of what I was thinking in, in and about the attrition rates. Um, yeah, I think the, are you going to ask one more question? Yeah. So I want to end oh. it because there's been okay. several questions on the stream and I've been trying to embed the questions coming in on the stream as we've been going along here for the most part. Um, and uh, I guess thinking about a way forward, um, you know, what could parents and kid bin pastors, youth pastors, what could they do instead? What kind of plan can they make? What are the alternatives? I'm just going to weigh in really quickly on a few curriculum alternatives. Um, I have, uh, I, th I think the a great place to commend is our friend Elizabeth Urbanovitz. Yeah. She's she's done some great curriculums. She's coming out with more. Um, we had a phone call a few weeks ago on her next big project, and it's three different modules, and it is going to be amazing. Really teaching children how to interpret the Bible, the nuts and bolts of it, and 
Uh, I gave her a lot of my trade secrets on how to do that. So we'll see if she works those in. But um, it's it's going to be great. Her ministry is Foundation Worldview. So go check out Elizabeth Urbanovich. She's got a couple of curriculum already out mm-hmm. um, with more coming. Uh, at our uh, home church, we use the New City Catechism. And we all go through the catechism together in an intergenerational con- context memorizing the catechism, discussing the catechism questions. And that's kind of an old fashioned way of doing it. But the new city catechism is an updated and modern language way of helping kids engage with the faith. Another great one that many people have been talking about on the chat um, during the stream is the gospel, the gospel project, which walks students through the whole story of the Bible is very gospel focused. And I did look at several samples from different grades a number of years ago, and it looked solid to me at the time when I was looking at it. So those are some options, but just kind of philosophically as a way forward. I like your point earlier, Lisa, that this might take time. Yeah. Like this, this we're trying to um, come against a very elite group and just saying, Hey, you know, we have concerns about the road that we're on and we're trying to sound the alarm, but we also realize that this is going to be a larger project to, to write this ship. What thoughts do you have as a former children's director of, you know, what, what you see as, as a way forward? Discipleship, discipling, um, yes, discipling kids, but also making sure that your leaders know the word what you know senior pastors get in there and 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 i know senior pastors and elders have a lot on their plates too but what is being taught in your children's ministry because these people are under your care Mm -hmm. so discipling um leaders making sure that they understand what the gospel is making sure they understand the word it i don't think that orange is only a, a problem because of like leader laziness or things like that. But I think that that does play an aspect into it at times. Everyone is busy. No, it's, it's easier just to hand someone a sheet of paper than it is to say, hey, here, let me sit down with you and actually teach you and disciple you. We are missing discipleship in our church, many of our churches. So I think um, that would be a way forward for me is that we really focus on discipleship. And then that as leaders, we are understanding um, what what people are actually up against culturally to a degree. It's like, yes, I need to disciple you into in in the way of the faith, and I also need to understand like this is this is going to be coming at kids. This question of LGBTQ plus is going to be coming at kids. So how do I have conversations? true biblical conversations about their identity, true biblical conversations about what the word says about them. But all of that comes from discipleship. Yeah. Lisa or, or Natasha, why don't you jump in here too? Well, I wanted to say too, that you mentioned Elizabeth Urbanowitz and there are people in the comments saying, you know, we want to see more a little bit, you know, we love another hour. I will tell you that Elizabeth is doing a deep dive on orange right now, and it's going to take her some time, but she's going to bring her findings I don't know if we'll do something like this again, or if I'll have her on my podcast or she'll do a video or however it'll work. She's going to give her kind of comprehensive findings. uh, And she's really good at analyzing these types of things and being really fair in her critique and her uh, presentation of that. So be looking for that and, you know, follow her and 
and get to know her thoughts on, on Orange as she does that deep dive. So I wanted to let you know that's coming. So I, I just, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend I know how to fix this. I don't. Um, the purpose of this video was really more like, hey, the house is on fire. Let's let's take a look at, you know, let's sound the alarm and, and, and take a look at these things. That's a different question than how do I implement what we're talking about or how do we walk this back? Or I don't know the answers to that, but I think Monique had some really good thoughts. And I think, too, the thing we want to acknowledge is that, you know, we know that children's pastors are overworked, often underpaid. Um, struggling for volunteers all the time. I, I know that's always a problem is trying to get enough volunteers for the kids ministry. It can be really tough. So we want to acknowledge that. Um, and I don't know what the creative way would be to start implementing more Bible-based teaching, but man, I don't, I think old school is great. You know, kids don't need um, a screen that's changing every four minutes. I think that contributes to the lack of attention span. My husband jokes about when he was a little kid, he had to sit in the front row of church for like two services in a row in a wool suit, you know, and, and I think that kids, kids are, they can do more than we think they can. They're capable of more and they're thinking deeper questions than we realize they are. And so, uh, you know, even if it means just pulling everybody together and reading through the gospel of John and engaging with some of that with your kids and then reading through the Bible with them and helping them understand the big picture as a pastor, and then maybe some sending them off into their smaller classrooms with volunteers for other things. Cause I realize it's tough. You know, you don't know what every volunteer is going to do. Um, but there, I'm, I'm certain there are creative ways, uh, but maybe it's going to take us abandoning this sort of new postmodern modern version of entertaining kids or this impetus we think where we have to entertain kids. Uh, because church is, it, it should be about discipleship. It should be about being in fellowship together, being the body of Christ together. And we need to invite kids into what that looks like, even from a young age. Um, I think it was Jay Werner Wallace who said that they're leaving us because they were never with us. Mm. You know, so often we, we send them off to these little entertainment zones with stuff. And then when they graduate high school, they're all of a sudden supposed to sit through a sermon in big church. And they've never even had to do that before. So I think there's some creative ways that we could all be thinking about implementing this or even walking back out of this or transitioning. Um, but, but I just want to encourage all the youth pastors and children's pastors out there. Um, I know it's hard, um, but you know, you were chosen for that ministry position for such a time as this and the Lord will help you. So our friend, Jim Wallace, I'm glad you mentioned him also has some books for kids uh, ad adapting his, um, books for adults, for kids, you know, that could be, you know, a couple month unit that people could go through. So there are some alternatives available as kids get older, there's more and more, um, possibilities in apologetics and theology that are out there. So there are some alternatives we, and we also understand, you know, that, that, Ministries are taxed, but I think that there's also something to be said for intergenerational mm -hmm. education. Kids won't die if they're in church yeah. and that um, they can learn how to sit still. They can learn how to have an attention span. Um, another model that's that's out there is our friend Jeremy Bannister, who's on the stream right now, is a friend of our ministry and really leading his church. He's a pastor. He's been um, a pastor in New Mexico for tw for two decades at the same church and really leading his church into biblical fluency. They all read through the Bible as a family 
and discuss it. And then he works his sermons into that every week. So they're coming into the sermon um, prepared. And, you know, Jeremy's not a, a, a big mega church pastor with a big platform, but he is grinding it out for the sake of the gospel, like many no-name pastors who are out there being faithful and teaching their people. And we want to say thank you. Thank you to every kidsman pastor, every youth pastor that is working hard to train our children. And uh, we know you are out there and we just want to say thank you for what you do. You know, there's a comment, uh, a couple comments that I'm, I'm just going to quickly, we don't need to go to them, but I'm going to address it on the Theology Mom page, a guy named Kevin Hardy. Um, he says, you need to sit in a grade one class. Well, Kevin, let me address you. I have sat with thousands of kids, thousands and thousands of kids. That's actually what I used to do in on different continents, thousands of kids, hundreds at a time. So not thousands at a time, but hundreds at a time. Done Bible lessons with hundreds of kids. I've taught dance to hundreds of kids. And yes, this actually can be done. This isn't about crowd control. This is more about the truth that we are offering kids. So when, like you later said, you know, how, how are you just going to sit down with, um, with, sit in a room with 70 kids and just read the Gospel of John? Done it been there and done that. And yes, it is possible. This is what we're saying. It's possible to offer kids truth. I don't have to offer them something soft. I don't have to offer them um, some secular humanistic framework just because they're little. I can actually sit down and read the gospel of John with them. I can actually sit down and have a conversation with them and train them in the way that they should go, not the way that secular humanism or culture is telling them to go. So I do understand your point. I hear what you're saying. Oh, like, it's not oh, that easy. Look but, at what just happened. Um, you got you got fired, Monique. Oh, no, actually, I didn't. I did so she's not trying to tell on you. Mm-hmm. She's, All right, so. she's speaking of, a, of the last church that I was at. I did not get fired from that position. That is actually um, I actually quit that position. I quit behind Orange and them not allowing me to leave from Orange. They did not want the gospel message to go forward. Then I quit because they would not allow the gospel to go forward. This is my problem with Orange is that it has to be calculated. I can't I can't offer the gospel except for like on, you know, a couple Sundays out of the year. But that's neither here nor there. What you know, what you believe is what you believe. My point is, is that we don't have to we don't have to placate children. I don't have to just sit down and, and give them something that we as adults say, well, this is all you can handle. No, children children are, are, are able to, to handle many things, even 70 grade ones. Yes, they can read First John. So, you know, if you don't, don't like what I'm saying, if you disagree, you are more than welcome to your opinion. We have to understand it some, because I take kids seriously. We have to understand that at some point, and I have been guilty of this, that if I don't offer them the truth of the scripture, they will not have it. Because many of the kids that I worked with, they weren't getting it in their homes. One of the things that Orange really prides itself on is looking at how many weeks out of a, a, a kid's life from like kindergarten to 18 a parent has and how many um, a children's minister will have. And so they break these things down into weeks and hours and minutes and even though the parent is the one who spends so much time with their kid, they're not giving them the gospel. So then we have to, on our end, how are we taking this responsibility seriously? I don't see Orange taking that responsibility seriously. I see them trying to build good humans. 
and not godly humans. This is this is why we're doing this. This isn't to cause discord. This isn't to ruffle feathers. If your feathers are ruffled, maybe sit down with the Lord and ask why your feathers are ruffled. You know? So let me let me read a comment real quick because yeah. I haven't had time to vet this, but I want to get this on the stream so people can check yeah. this out and see if this is true. There's uh, someone on my Facebook page, Lauren. And Lauren, if you could leave a link, this would be great because I don't have time to click on it and see. But she says, in addition to all of these concerns, their parent Q Instagram page, oh, where to go, regularly has quotes from people like Glennon Doyle. Jen Hatmaker spoke at their conference in 2018. Wow. So, yes. Okay, so, so at best, this is important. If Jen Hatmaker spoke at 2018, that's two years after she changed her mind on same-sex marriage and became gay-affirming. And she was invited to speak at the Orange Conference. You, you can analyze that how you like. Uh, Glennon Doyle, if you're unfamiliar, is uh, married to another woman and is regularly writing, uh, tearing down the foundations of historic Christianity and inviting other people mm. into that process. She is a former mom, Christian mommy blogger ended up writing a bunch of books, getting on Oprah. And she's written one of the most popular books across all genres in the last several years called Untamed that essentially teaches, I have reviews of this book on my, um, on my YouTube channel. I actually did a review with Melissa Doherty on her YouTube channel. And I think that might, I don't know if it's up yet, but it will be soon. So if anybody wants to know what that's about, check that out. Because if that is what they're quoting and they're having Jen Hatmaker on, um, that's, that's an even bigger red flag than, than I realized. Um, I think Miss Winnie says, Theology Mom, you mentioned Jim Wallace. Which Jim Wallace? Look oh, up Jay Warner Wallace. Jay Wa- Warner Wallace. Thank you for that clarification. Yes. All um, right. I think we're done. Thank you both for doing this. It was good. Hopefully people will find this as a start. And I think we did mention some more resources. We want to continue to cheer on uh, everyone who's working in this area and hopefully new new. Uh, Options will continue to emerge. So thank you all and God bless you and good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.